0: i'm jason klom and this is the comedy on vinyl podcast the year is 1974 the album the missing white house tapes the artist the national lampoon my guest this week is bill oakley thank you so much for doing the show
1: Hey, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here and talk about this classic National Lampoon
0: album. So uh, we can do a very quick sort of I mean you were you were VP of the, the Harvard Lampoon. You you obviously went to Harvard. What was your experience with the National Lampoon uh, and when did you first discover them?
1: You know, I have I'd say there's there's two different sets of experiences. The first was the experience I had as a as a kid. Um, when I transitioned from, like many people did in that era, when you transition, when you become about 12 and you start to transition from reading MAD to reading National Lampoon, again, this only applies to people who grew up in the seventies and early eighties, but around, um, around the time that, um, you start to reach puberty, you, you, you started to discover National Lampoon, which is a far more adult, um, magazine than MAD, very funny magazine, certainly in the mid seventies, it was extremely high quality, tons of, um, Great graphics, comics, writing, you know, photography, gags and crap like that. And then uh, it it was more also it was dirtier. You know, it was much more entertaining to a teenage boy than mad. And so uh, it also was very what happened was probably around the time I was 11. I started reading mainly National Lampoon and I became totally obsessed with like their whole catalog, like buying the back issues, buying the records and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that's what led me to discover this album. Now, secondarily, when I was on the Harvard Lampoon in college, this was during the decline of national National, national Lampoon's heyday. For, for those who don't remember, it was probably like about 1970 to about 1981, uh-huh. maybe. Um, and around the time I was in college, which was the late 80s, National Lampoon was all was already severe in severe. And uh, the Harvard Lampoon has a deal with the National Lampoon that, like, because it's a licensee of the Lampoon name, and it was founded by Harvard Lampoon people, that we kind of control their operations. And at a certain point. We were like, just, just please stop publishing the magazine. Like, you can keep the name for uh-huh. movies or whatever, but the magazine became such an embarrassment that the deal was just like, is law. You can keep the name and continue to license it, but just don't publish the magazine anymore. And that was probably around. That was probably the mid '90s when that happened. So my relationship with National Lampoon effectively ended probably in the late '80s when it became. I think obviously all the original people were long, long gone, and it became kind of a service to. Uh, print reprints and it only came out maybe once or twice a year anyway anyway so i'm, I'm talking obviously but the, when i speak about the national lampoon on this podcast i mean the classic era
0: sure sure no that that makes sense so you discovered them just young enough uh, do you know the first album did you were you listening from the beginning i mean you you're probably too young to listen to them from the beginning but i would imagine you would have grabbed them all at some point
1: i think i had most of them mm-hmm. uh they weren't easy to find, you know. But in the in, in the pre-internet era, like you had to go to record stores, obviously, and uh, you'd have to go to used record stores often to find things that weren't current. And there weren't a huge number of record stores in, in Washington D.C. where I grew up, certainly that had like old, weird stuff like this. So when I found one, I would snatch it up. And like, I had, I had a, f- a fair number of them. Um, I obviously had all the Animal House ones. I had what what, are their, what was their greatest hits one? You know that one with the gold with the uh, the painting on the front. You know what I'm talking about?
0: I do know what you're talking about. I'd have to, I can pull it up. Um, Let's see here. Um, I can't
1: remember what it was called, but it was, a lot of it was repackaged stuff from Radio Dinner. Radio Dinner was, I think, their most famous album. And then, uh, I'm pretty sure I had that. And I had this, and one or two others. Um, This is the one that, for some reason, sticks in my memory. uh, And that's why I want to talk about it with you guys today.
0: And I'm, you know, it's so funny because I don't think I was, because I hadn't heard it before. It's one of those that I've owned, but decided not to listen to until somebody picked it. So it would be pretty fresh in my mind. I wasn't expecting National Lampoon to do, be doing um, kind of cut up jobs of tapes. I was not expecting that at all from them, although it's done very effectively.
1: Yeah, and I would be very curious to know who asked. I- actually did that like was that was that done by someone on the national lampoon staff or was it done by someone else and like hey do you want to put the national lampoon name on this like the credits for the album are maddeningly hard to discern
0: and, right.
1: and i mean the, the cut-up tapes job which i guess we'll get to talking about in a second is pretty good but it doesn't seem like i mean it doesn't normally seem like a national lampoon operation that it's side two that seems like a national lampoon operation but sure it was still a high quality thing and it doesn't necessarily seem like their usual brand i agree
0: Right, and I I, I guess I'm going to have to do a little bit of digging. I, My assumption is that there's a chance that the two gentlemen credited as producers maybe had a hand in it, or like you say, I hadn't thought about that. it's possible that they got them elsewhere um, and licensed them or something, um, or just bought them out. Um, uh, so, yeah. So for those who don't know, side one is, is that. Well,
1: let me tell you, this is also, I think there's a little context that probably, now that we're talking about something that happened 45 years, this is literally right. 45 years old, that is that probably is lost to modern day history. Like this was right at the time, this was right before Saturday night live. It was literally the apex of national Lampoon's famousness. And it had this whole, this whole fleet of famous comedians who were working for national Lampoon on their, on their Broadway shows and their records who were all just about to become hugely famous on Saturday night live, probably months after this record came out, you know, or maybe a year like, this is like National Lampoon was was the, was the literally the most happening thing in comedy from 1970 to 1974, at least in a certain type of comedy. Obviously, Richard Pryor was happening elsewhere and things like that. But National Lampoon magazine was the place to be. And it had a um, a, a couple of different Broadway shows, the most famous of which was called Lemmings. Yes. And a lot of the actors, I believe, including Chevy Chase, Gildy Radner, John Belushi, who within years were to become hugely famous as the founding cast of Saturday Night Live were, were in there. They were all found by the National Lampoon crowd. They were all part of the National Lampoon crowd, and they appeared on all these records. And this record, having come out, I assume this record probably came out in, I don't know, uh, June, July 1974. They were probably already in, in the early stages of trying to put together Saturday Night Live, and this may have been one of the last albums where these you know where Chevy Chase and John Belushi were available <laughs> to do this kind of crazy right, stuff yeah. on a record before they became huge, huge celebrities, um, and that also was covered. Everybody who hasn't seen that movie about Doug Kenny, Doug Kenny was one of the most important guys in comedy and one of the, uh, the principal founder of National Lampoon. There was a movie on Netflix a year or two ago called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which yeah. is like a biopic of of Doug Kenny, and it goes into a little bit of this. and I think there's justifiably some some anger on the part of Doug Kenney and National Lampoon when Saturday Night Live just stole their whole thing. Yeah. Stole all their actors and several of their writers right out from under them. And, you know, thus bringing the most golden era of National Lampoon to a swift end in 1975.
0: Yeah. That uh, we actually interviewed a couple of the gentlemen, uh, who, the two gentlemen who wrote that movie, who wrote uh, Fuel and Stupid Gesture. And it was fun because I, I, you know, it was one of those things like, is this an assignment movie? But no, they, they had been fans of The Lampoon for a very long time. So thank goodness it was a, a project of passion. Um, I, I, I I, quite enjoyed yeah. that. I wasn't sure was if pretty- I would because, you know, it, it's one of those movies is clearly about a bunch of assholes who are just very funny and, uh, you know, but fascinating. Right. You know, Um i i want to know a little bit about i agree uh,
1: those guys are ready.
0: uh i actually want to know a little bit i always like to ask people about what it was like uh you know working for the harvard lampoon um and if there's anything i don't know if, if you have a concept of how how it might have been different from when it started well not from when it started but from the golden era um from when doug kenny was there
1: oh yeah okay well um you mean working for National Lampoon, not the Harvard Lampoon, or, or either one?
0: Oh, I meant the Harvard Which Lampoon first. I'm, I'm, I'm always 30%. interested in the Harvard Lampoon because fewer people talk about that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, the Harvard Lampoon is a college club. Yes. And it only publishes the, – the magazine, the Harvard Lampoon, is really only distributed on the Harvard campus. Once in a while, it slips, off, slips out to newsstands elsewhere. Right. Um, and it's you know it's a club it's been around since 1876, um, it's the nation's oldest humor magazine it's probably the world's second oldest humor magazine I think, after maybe Punch or whatever which yeah. may have had some, on and off times. Um, anyway, so the the principal thing about the magazine and it, well the club itself is that it has this beautiful castle, which is literally a small castle, off Harvard Square which was built um, in 1909 and, and financed mainly by William Randolph Hearst who was a graduate of the Lampoon. And the fact that the the fact that the Lampoon has a ca- has this castle, which is architecturally significant, gives it a certain cachet that other undergraduate clubs that don't have castles don't have. You mm-hmm. know, so people want to know, people. So it's keep it's probably what's kept the magazine alive at certain points is not only the real estate investment that that the place has, but also this certain mystique. So over the years, there's been a whole bunch of, you know, it was exclusively male until 1972, I guess, when Radcliffe merged with Harvard. Um, But over the years, lots of, you know, famous comedians and comedy writers of a certain ilk like Robert Benchley um, and that George Plimpton, John Updike, also actors like Fred Gwynn um, had been on The Lampoon. And the magazine was always kind of not, was okay. Mm -hmm. Certainly was fine for a college humor magazine. It was nothing, it was never all that great. Uh, There were certain periods when it became great due to the, but the thing is, the staff turns over every three years. Like, there's no, the staff is just completely comprised of undergraduates. So uh, every three years, it depends on what the crowd is. Some years there's a whole staff that just doesn't give a crap; it doesn't barely puts out the magazine at all. Other times there are people who live there, and are dedicated to you know having the best time and putting out the funniest magazine possible. So yeah. it varies from year to year. Uh, anyway, in nineteen in you know, sixty-seven, sixty-eight, sixty-nine, uh, Doug Kenny was there along with Henry Beard and Rob Hoffman. And those were the guys who founded National Lampoon. Right. Um, and they got this license from the Harvard Lampoon to use that name. And also, the a certain percentage of National Lampoon royalties went back to the Harvard Lampoon, which really kept it afloat for quite a long time with the Animal House royalties and National Lampoon vacation and things like that. So that's what it is. Now, what was it like to work on the Lampoon? Uh, it was fun. I mean, i say it was a little bit like being on a fraternity without the fr- without has some of the fraternity – some of the worst aspects of a fraternity, but also some of the aspects that a fraternity doesn't have. Like it's not all about your social status. It's all about your – a lot of times the people who are elected have never – we've never met them.
0: Uh-huh. It's
1: only been based on their pieces – based on their comedy pieces and their um and and their artwork. And then they show up and you're like, holy crap, this is the weirdest person I've ever met. <laughs> and now he's part of our, our private club. And there's, it definitely happened a number of people – a number of times with people – who are extremely weird, but you know, it's a it's a rare fraternity where you get both men and women, um, of of every race and every economic background, uh, that are selected purely from their comedy or artistic ability, or in some cases their ability to sell ads, um, and then they're all kind of like you know they're wearing tuxedos and fancy formal dresses for the um, for the party for the fraternity style parties that we have. So like. It's an interesting combination of those two types of things. Um, and it's very—it's a big meritocracy, I would say, for the most part. Uh, and it's dedicated mainly to putting out the magazine, which is mostly, as I said, on the Harvard campus. But every year or so, The Lampoon also puts out a national publication, like a parody. Sometimes we would do, like, the most famous thing ever was the Board of the Rings book. But yes. sometimes we, that was in the 70s. But also, um, you know, we would do uh, parodies of, like, we had a parody of USA Today, yeah. a parody of a Harry Potter book. Things like that, um, or uh, you know, they did a parody of the Huffington Post website like uh, three or four years ago. So that's the only national
0: exposure that the place has. Right. Do All you, right. That's, I, that covered that. No, it does. It's it's good. I, I I'm just always curious because they there there bits and pieces. Obviously, you're never going to really get exposed to if you're not <clears throat> a part of it. I do know that also. Maybe around the time you were there, they released at least one flexi disc, if I'm not mistaken. They, 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 every once in a while would cut a little comedy yeah, single. Yeah, that was, I think,
1: I believe that was around 80 or 81. And oh, okay, I think it was reasons, a little before. Jean, who you may have met, um, were involved in that. And maybe, Ver- maybe Patrick Verone was, too.
0: It's quite possible, yeah. I, I know that, I know that he, he mentioned it to me. He, we definitely discussed it, um... I'm curious about what this album means to you at all in term you were very young when the nixon stuff is happening so but it's obviously a part of it it's in the air constantly so what does this album mean to you besides just being kind of really goofy when you're 12 or so
1: that's you know that's one of the weird things about this that i had not heard this album probably in 35 years yeah. since until you mi- emailed it to me for this thing and it really brings back a lot of memories. Like this is the, I think part of what was, it, part of what drew me to this album was just that I want, there wasn't very much that was going on that was entertaining those days. So I would just get everything. Like I think this album, I wouldn't say this is one of the National Lampoon's greatest works, but it has a certain emotional resonance for me, which is why I wanted to talk about it today. Um, I think it was more just like, i by National Lampoon. I don't know what it is. It's fascinatingly weird. It's a relic of, of maybe like nine years ago when people were talking about Watergate, and I sort of learned about Watergate from this. Like I was not, I wasn't paying attention at all to Watergate when I was a little kid, when I was eight years old when it happened. Right. Um, I was probably listening to this album when I was like fifteen and sixteen, which was, um, you know, nine year, eight or nine years after Watergate. So I didn't realize, I didn't think I understood a lot. Of out of this stuff until yesterday when i revisited the <laughs> album for the first time and now being a watergate buff myself i'm like oh that's what that was um and there's still one or two things in here that i was like whoa that's an obscure i had to look up this whole thing with the itt scandal and need a beard i completely forgot i think i may have heard about it once in my life which is referenced several times on the album it's a weird thing. And I think about this album that I think hopefully your listeners will appreciate when we discuss it is the incredible resonance it has for today, for our political oh, yeah. scene today, which is probably it's, it's the most noteworthy aspect of it.
0: For sure, yeah, I mean, that that was the thing that was occurring to me. i I wrote a, an article a few months, mu- no, a few months ago, sometime last year, and uh, I guess I skipped this one over, which uh, kind of upsets me, but I was writing about specifically about albums that tried to take down Nixon. and that was that's that's a hyperbole version. but it's a bunch of, you know, satirical albums of Nixon because honestly, I don't think that there is. There's no moment in in pop culture or culture or history that has had more comedy albums made out about made about it, uh, other than Watergate and Nixon. And so it's right. fascinating when yes. somebody who was born then, or was alive then, or around then, it's fascinating which one they pick. Um, and so it. That's why I'm always interested. Like. Well, what's what, what would have been your Nixon album? Um, and this is one that I guess I missed when I was writing it, uh, but it's kind of more my style, honestly, uh, because I really like the cut-up stuff. Frankly, <laughs> I'm a child, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. I like the, <laughs> the sketches are pretty good too. Like, yeah, they're like, great. This is it's a pretty it's it's a B list effort <laughs> from yeah. the National Lampoon, but it's got an A list cast, and it's there's some pretty there's still some pretty funny stuff in here. There's a number of things that I also will say like. Just a sidebar here. It was a it's such a weird thing to remember the days when people when you would sit down and listen to a record or you'd have a friend come over and you'd say, hey, come over and listen to this record. (laughs) I can't imagine anybody doing that today. But this obviously happened between me and my writing partner, Josh Weinstein. Josh and I ran The Simpsons back in the day we wrote all these scripts. And so we were and we were also high school friends. I recall us listening to this album together several times and imitating stuff from it. And there's a number of things that I have heard here, like, "Oh yeah, we used to say that all the time." Um, Mainly those, like the Sam Irvin impressions that Chevy Chase was doing, Uh
0: and
1: a couple other things like that. From that, one of the most memorable parts of this, that speech where Nixon says, "You know, people who disagree should be shouted down, even physically assaulted." (laughs) (laughs) I think we used to find that especially hilarious. So there is a lot of stuff in here that for a brief period, was really like the the meme <laughs> that Josh and I shared, uh, you know, in high school, which, and it was this obscure comedy, Nixon's stuff.
0: I, l- I love that so much. Yeah. I, I always wonder when things like this are so much in your blood, uh, if you can ever peg when you've turned them into something else. And usually it's not obvious. It's, it's not like clearly, unless it's a, an explicit reference on something you've written. Uh, is there anything that, that you can think of that's like that, or is it just in your blood?
1: I believe that this was partially responsible for turning both of us into Watergate buffs. Mm -hmm. And and the fact that like, that this was fascinating. We were like, Oh, this is because we totally, as I said, we've missed the Watergate boat with this. We were enjoying this nine or 10 years after Watergate, but we enjoyed this album immensely. Uh, We also were fans of the National Lampoon from that era. So I think we got a lot of Watergate satire (laughs) eight or nine years too late. Mm -hmm. And that, and that caused Watergate buff. So that's why we've done stuff like the most famous Watergate thing we've done probably is the um, sideshow Bob Roberts episode of The Simpsons, yeah, which is a Watergate satire all the way from A to Z. Uh, and then we've done a number of other things with Watergate references in them, and even up to you know my twitter virtually every day um (laughs) when i called (laughs) gordon sondland the new jeb magruder things like that that nobody would care nobody cares or knows what i'm talking about but as a watergate buff um this is probably one of the seminal uh items that helped turn me into that
0: is it do you have a concept of uh, beyond this sort of spurring it why it's consistently stuck with you is it just because you're aware that at some point it's probably going to come back slash has come back or is it just, and that's why it's important to you to keep talking about it. Um, I, I'm just curious why, why, no, why I don't so think that's important. what it was. Okay.
1: I think it's the, it's the, I think it's the culture of the, I think because Josh and I both grew up in Washington DC in the seventies sure. and eighties. Um, and then that our parents were heavily immersed in the political world in this era. And I think that like the, um, the culture, the culture and time of that era of the, in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, is particularly fascinating to us. Um, and we continue to do stuff about it right now. I'm actually doing a huge thing for Amazon um, about this very thing. Not Watergate, but a few years earlier. Okay. Um, so it continues to be... A, a era. The, the, actually, the politics of it are, are very interesting, but I actually am uh, all, all very much interested in the whole culture of the time um, and the thing, you know, things like Nixon... Going out on his boat with his friends, helping. I don't know. I am fascinated by the, <laughs> by the weird, non-political culture of the Nixon White House as well.
0: Okay, no, that's that's fair. I I mean I I can see that being a huge part of of, just why that would mean so much to the both of you. I love that you both shared it. See, because early on, and I still try and bring this up. One of the things about this show is I'm always curious about. Hey, did you ever make friends over comedy, or did you have somebody with whom you shared this record? Well, that's been made quite clear uh that a comedy partnership came out of this uh in in some way yeah. um that's remarkable definitely. to me um so, and it's something that you have quoted to each other. it's the most delightfully nerdy thing i've heard on the show in a while i i love that and it's, <laughs> it's it's a it's a very positive thing i like when comedy albums do that um let's uh, i don't know if you we don't have to do this track by track but we can definitely talk about your favorite parts of this um I've already admitted, I I am a nerd for like cut up comedy. I mean, when I first learned to edit comedy, that's what I was doing. I think I was editing speeches or something like that, not knowing that that was a common thing that had been done. Um, So uh, also, actually, that's that'd be something. Did you did you ever make comedy yourselves? Like, did you ever record yourselves? Did you ever do anything like this?
1: nothing like this we did make comedy i mean we made probably comedy videos and and we made fake radio shows and stuff briefly and things like that our comedy was mainly uh print comedy the Mm -hmm. thing that we did that i kind of i guess i'd say was our claim to fame or at least was what probably what got me admitted to harvard to begin with was we founded a a humor magazine in high school um because i was obsessed with humor magazines with national lampoon in particular at that stage and the one of the the editors the non-creative editors of national lampoon published a book about how to create a humor magazine. Amazing. And I was, you know, I basically just did, did did it at, I followed it step by step at the school. I got people to pay for the magazine in advance. And Josh and I started this humor magazine that we, that was pretty good. I would say that in retrospect it was actually better than most college humor magazines in high school. And it was, it was like 40 pages long and it had comics and all sorts of stuff. It was really good. So, wow. and I think that impressed the admissions officers at the time because it was, um, it was an unusual achievement. Um, so, you know, that's that's one thing that we did like that. That's um, remarkable. I wouldn't say that we did a lot. of We didn't do a lot of comedy production. Uh, and this I mean, just so you're I'm sure you're I'm sure your listeners already know when you say cut up comedy, what you mean is that it's it's work. They've edited various Nixon speeches to make them sound, make them sound far more comical and incriminating than they actually were.
0: Yes. That's right. What, Sorry there's a more common term for it and I'm absolutely forget blanking on it so that's why I just keep saying cut up it's not the right term at all just, just for those who are uh, gonna correct me on it
1: yeah, I'll say like these it's hard for me the tracks there's 11 tracks let say there's 11 tracks on the first side of this album all of which are edited pieces of Nixon's speeches um, where they have made him sound like a dope or made him confess to a crime or uh-huh. whatever by using his act- a- actual speeches but edited edited cleverly together. Um, Some of them are more effective than other ones like that one where he's on the phone with there's one where he's on the phone with John Mitchell, <laughs> which seems to be edited Watergate phone calls where it's like where it's really crap. Like <laughs> the editing is really crappy. Everyone sounds like when you tra- when you cut up sentences like this, it, it, sometimes it doesn't sound like the person is ending a sentence. It just sounds like the, the, it's hanging there uh-huh. in a weird way. And that one is particularly crappy. There are a number of there are a number of, of, of very good ones on here. Uh, notably, in my opinion, the two. Uh, the first one, which is the Checker speech, which mm-hmm. is a, um, which is Nixon's classic Checker speech from the nineteen six. Wait, no, I'm sorry, the nineteen fifty two election, mm-hmm. right? Or is it the nineteen fifty six election? Where, where he went on uh, TV, and you know he said about the little dog that he'd gotten, but no matter what they say about it, we're going to keep it. And they re-edited <laughs> this part to say, and in that, you know, that the box, <laughs> and in that box was a little just a little less than (laughs) $10,000. No matter (laughs) what they say about it, we're going to keep it. Like that part, that made me laugh because also because that's so, it's very, it's perfectly edited. Um, Let's see. Now there are a couple other ones on this that I thought, there's a few golden ones. Like I really like that one. I believe it's either the 10th or 11th track, which is the wrap up, which is the one I said, where the one where he basically sort of outlines his, the cut up speech where Nixon basically outlines his philosophy about how, the mechanisms of government should be used against the people. <laughs> Those who disagree should be shouted down or even violently, physically assaulted. That part <laughs> that makes me laugh. And that's, a, that, that's a phrase that Josh and I said all the time, the physically assaulted thing. <laughs> um, and there's like, the, uh, they're playing that pomp and circumstance, uh, music underneath that. Um, there's another good, there, another good one is that one that's supposed to be said in the hearings. Um, and he says a lot of crazy incriminating things. Um, it's pretty funny. Like, in general, um, I think it's a solid effort. Like, certainly by today's standards, it's pretty amateurish because, like, today you can audio edit things seamlessly. Yeah. Um, these are obviously done probably on physical, actual, you know, magnetic tape by hand by hand, and it obviously was a hard job, and a lot of them don't hang together that well. But the ones that do are fairly seamless, like that checker speech one, and uh, they're pretty memorable. Yeah. It's now, a- again, yeah. also, like, would anybody today would anybody today give shit about hearing these i don't know <laughs> like i'm kind of a nixon buff um and and i i enjoyed hearing them because uh, i like to hear nixon i mean this is a good job i like to hear nixon talk and i also like the nostalgia value of this but it's a real period piece in terms of like i don't know that anybody would be the slightest bit interested in this <laughs> album side if they weren't already a watergate buff with some knowledge of the underlying material
0: you could you could be right i as a comedy nerd i'm always interested in what people are doing to try and be funny and where they succeed and where they fail so at least on that level and i know we got a lot of people who listen for that so it's worth listening to to sort of gauge what you think works and and what doesn't it's funny because if you wrote these out as sketches they don't work that's not the joke the whole joke is obviously let's see how much we can take this man's actual words and make him sound you know like like he's admitting to the asshole he is Um, and so it's, it's interesting because you can fail real hard because you have to get those edits just right in order for them to be very, and they're, they are just seamless.
1: And some of them are not like the ones from the recording from the telephone recordings, like the John Mitchell one is super. There's lots of ones that hang there and it's like, wait a minute, he was only, he was clearly in the middle of a sentence when that, when that ended and things like that. So it like, it's some of them work better than others. And it's just a question of luck probably in terms of what intonation the speaker was using at that moment. Anyway, there's a couple, I would say out of the. Eleven tracks on this, there's at least four that are seamless enough to really, really be entertaining. And it's like, you're like, I mean, like, you don't know what Nixon really said. and You know he probably didn't confess to a crime or say people should be physically assaulted, <laughs> but it sure sounds like it. That's how perfectly it's put together.
0: Yeah. I th- I think the first time again I, we're we're of a slightly different generation, but the first time I ever heard this done was in the movie Good Morning Vietnam. There's a ton of that where, uh, Robin Williams characters cutting up specifically Nixon speeches and some other ones just to make them say terrible things about their genitals. Do you know the first time you ever heard anything like this? Was it this album?
1: It's got to have been this. Yeah. yeah, I don't recall anything other than that prior to this stage. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because uh, I know there, there's a weird, like, I have some friends who have a passion for this exact kind of thing. Um, and I'm going to have to ask them and, and get them to comment on it at some point, because I'm curious how far back this goes. Um, but it's like, it's so perfectly subversive. I mean, this while the Nixon era didn't invent sub- subversive humor, it, it is its own brand. Nixon's subversive humor is its own thing entirely.
1: Right, right, right. They, oh, it should also be said also that the um, there's a wraparound on this side, which is BB Rebozo, which appears to be John Belushi, if I'm right, playing BB Rebozo. And BB Rebozo, right. for those who don't know, was Nixon's closest friend. a uh, very wealthy businessman. And I don't think he sounded like this. I don't think he <laughs> sounded like Mar. He sounds like he sounds like Mario. Yeah. Like it's it's Belushi doing the corniest Italian impression. I don't think Rebozo Bo- was Italian even. It wasn't Cuba? I don't know. But <laughs> the, he's like, hey, I'm a. So we're gonna sell you that, that. so it's basically like him being a pitchman for for, for we're gonna we want to sell you these watergate tapes <laughs> you can buy the collection for 1999 and it's just a lot of real corny things where he's like he's literally saying like hey abundant he's saying like hey we're gonna have a lasagna we're gonna have a pizza pie like, and he's, I just like it was mostly improvised yeah probably. yeah <laughs> um it's funny to hear belushi doing it though
0: yeah, I, I that's what I thought. I thought that was him. Um, so who? All right. So who else? We've got John Belushi. We've got Chevy Chase. Um, there are other names on here who I am not as familiar with.
1: Is it Ronda Cule? Like yes. Well, I actually thought it was Jane Curtin. Um, but it, it does it. There's only four or five actors on this whole thing, right? And okay, let's see. John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Ronda Cule, and Tony Shuren. I don't know who Tony Shuren is. Ronda Cule, I think was. On a, on a lot of National Lampoon albums, but I don't know anything about her other than that. The only other two stars are Belushi and Chevy Chase, who seem to be doing almost all the, um, characters on side two. And so I can tell you what stood out for me here. Like sure. there was a number of, this is obviously, this is a side of comedy sketches and like, they're pretty They're, I mean, there, some of them are better than others. Some of them are real slow. Um, some of them are parodies of things nobody would know today. Um, but, and like, I would say, again, it's not necessarily the National Lampoon's best work, but some of, some of the things rise to um, the level of being funny. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. um, the wrap, the wraparound is the impeach is the impeachment day parade, which is a pair. It's like basically a parody of, uh, <laughs> you know, a parade broadcast, right. with, um, two anchor people, one of whom is Chase, the other of whom must be Rhonda kool talking about the, um, The parade, like you know, it's basically like the inaugural day parade, but it's in reverse. And there's parades, and so forth, and then coming to the culminating with the swearing out, which I love that. (laughs) This is the second to last track on the album, which is the swearing out ceremony with Billy Graham, and that part where he goes like, "Richard Nixon, you lied your ass off. Fuck (laughs) off!" At the end, which I recall being pretty shocking because it was like. Whoa, that's Billy Graham, first of all, mm-hmm. and also like he says "fuck off," which was pretty outrageous at the time. Uh-huh. And I, um, I really liked that a lot. So that's another one of those things that we would quote was that Billy Graham swearing out of Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, there's another th- like Pennsylvania Avenue is a parody of Sesame Street uh-huh. where Nixon. There's a, a pretty funny kind of Nixon. Like if you imagine a uh, uh, Richard Nixon Muppet voice, that it's pretty good. And then he's he, he's feeding the tapes to the shredder monster who is, like, like the cookie monster, and then, like, there's other characters, Sesame Street characters that are involved um, about, like, you know, in the search for the missing tapes. That's pretty funny. Um, Let's see. The Plumber. There's so many dated things here, like the Josephine the Plumber. Did you have any idea what the Josephine the Plumber commercial was?
0: I had to just try and, from context, figure out approximately what it was doing, but no, no, no specifics.
1: Okay. There was a parody. There was this... (laughs) I (laughs) was In the '60s and early '70s, there was a commercial for Comet Cleanser that was one of those really popular series of commercials. You know how, like, you know who Mr. Whipple is with Charmin sure, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Like, do you remember him? Uh, this is another one of those. Those, and it didn't obviously people didn't remember it. It didn't have the longevity of Mr. Whipple. Was Josephine the plumber? And it was a lady plumber. And everybody was like, oh, they were amazed the fact that a lady plumber was coming to their house. And she was like, all you need is Comet cleanser to clean out your sink or whatever the hell it was. So there's a whole parody of Josephine the Lady Plumber. But it's, of course, it's about the plum, the White House plumbers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like that one didn't really test the time. <laughs> <laughs> then there was this, th- that really slow one, like the Constitution game, which was like the, the search for um, the person next person who could be president. Remember did that one? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, was Carl Albert.
0: Oh, yes, the, right.
1: Another pretty deep – it was It was basically a parody of a game show with Carl Albert, who I think was the Speaker of the House at that time, looking for who who in the line of succession is the next person who didn't have a criminal record in the Nixon administration. And they're down <laughs> to, like, literally the Deputy deputy Undersecretary of Agriculture for Soil Affairs, and it turns out that he has taken some kickbacks from the soil company so <laughs> That, and the joke is, like, they have to go through 500 people to find anybody in the Nixon administration who's not crooked. <laughs> um, what else? Okay, the Senate hearings one, that's my favorite. Like, it's so it's so half-assed, yet so funny. Uh-huh. The Senate hearings one, which is the eighth track on this thing, is when Chevy Chase, the primary joke is Chevy Chase doing an impression of Sam Irvin. And the, <laughs> it's hard to state, like, how much of a comedy figure Sam Irvin was, and even I wasn't White, cognizant of what was going on in 1974, but like he is a big old so he was and he was the head of the hearings, and he was a big old southern senator who literally sounded like Foghorn Leghorn, right? And would even do that kind of same stutter like uh, I tell you boy, I tell you boy, I tell you, 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 you. say, <laughs> and so this whole thing, this whole track is basically just Chevy Chase constantly doing <laughs> a Foghorn Leghorny impression. Asking questions, but he's constantly getting the name wrong. He literally changes the name of the of the person testifying with every single sentence <laughs> to a different Watergate conspirator. And then he says, like, Mr. Butterfield. He gets Alexander Butterfield's name, mixed up, calls him Mr. Buttermilk. And then he keeps the, – and finally at the end he has this crazy breakdown where he can't say anything. And he just goes like, just answer the question, boy. <laughs> and it's like you don't usually get to hear Chevy Chase doing kind of like a foghorn, leghorn, southern thing. So no. it's funny, and it's so corny. I really like that one. Um, The next track is another commercial parody from that era, which I believe was from Colgate, where there used to be this commercial where the kid would run, like the parent was doing something. The joke was the parent was doing something important, like giving a press conference or, or, you know, I don't know, giving a presentation at work. And the kid would run in and say, daddy, daddy, I only got two cavities or I didn't get any cavities because I brushed with Colgate. And it was like, I don't know. The premise was that it was so exciting and so important that the kid didn't get any cavities that they could interrupt this business meeting. Um, and in this case, it's a parody of a press conference at the Nixon White House with Ron Ziegler and his kid, his kid runs in with this dental report and then Ron Ziegler obfuscates it in the way that he always did, very much like the um, I don't know, Sean Spicer or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh-huh. which is totally unload this load of bullshit <laughs> onto you about his dental report. Um, finally, the one I believe it was Mission Impeachable. This the one there's two a few other tracks that really spoke to me. One was I think it was Mission Impeachable, yeah. which was the parody of the Mission Impossible tape. Right. Okay. That one was Chevy Chase. You know, if you've ever seen the old Mission Impossible, you know it begins usually with Mr. Phelps getting a tape that says, like, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to overthrow the embassy of so and so. And at stake is this and that, and you know, you'll have at your disposal, like, and laying out the whole premise. Now, this one was Chevy Chase parodying that tape. And outlining what still apparently is apparently the mission of the entire Republican Party. Like, you know, like <laughs> that one, I was like, whoa, This this is the one I was like, this... Seems like it was written today. Yeah, because it's like the long, the laundry list of goals of the Republican Party in this, in this miss impeachable was like you know to serve the interests of big business to pack the support, to pack the Supreme Court with right wing morons and stuff like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh shit, that's exactly. It really hasn't <laughs> evolved at all. So like a lot of this stuff is extremely dated, and that's kind of why it's funny to me. But this one was like it was written today. It's extremely prescient, and it's weird because it seems like you know uh, those of us who are not in the republican party this sounds like a laundry list of their contemporary goals yeah which is you know to enrich enrich, enrich themselves you know serve the interest of big business uh pack the supreme court with right-wing morons and that one there was one i was like oh man <laughs> that's really prescient so that one i like then we have we follow we follow that up with the swearing out which was entertaining, as I said, when Billy Graham tells Nixon to fuck off. And then <laughs> the Jerry Ford show, I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't think I even realized until y- yesterday that was supposed to be Jerry Ford. Right. Like, I was like, what? At the end, I said, because it's not a good impression of Jerry Ford. And no. I think it's Belushi doing it, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> it sounds nothing like him. And he's going, <laughs> and I don't think, I, I because I was not looking at the album track listing, um, I guess when I listened to it in 19... 19- 81 i didn't realize i was supposed to be a jerry ford impression i thought it was more sesame street right right you know and and so i was like oh that's jerry ford because he sounds like duh and it's (laughs) it's basically like a a really half-assed parody of the tonight show with jerry ford going like we've got a great show for Uh, (laughs) you and and i think the thing about that is it sounds like a lot of this material was probably either improvised or made up on the spot there's some more tightly scripted stuff that 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 seems like people put a lot of hard work into it, but there's also a lot of kind of half ass stuff, which either doesn't hold up today or only is amusement. It's amusing like that Chevy Chase thing as like, this is so stupid, it's hilarious Yeah. Um, with him, Chevy Chase and Irvin. So like, it's a, it's a, again, this is an album. I wouldn't recommend people run out and search for this album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if they want to have their, they want to be tickled pink. I think this is more of a, uh, a time capsule of not only, the Watergate-era comedy, but also kind of like National Lampoon's more outrageous take
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the Watergate scandal. And also a great time capsule of hearing Chevy Chase and Belushi before they got famous, before when they were still willing to do stuff like a Foghorn Leghorn yeah. impression or a Corny Bozo impression. Um, and it's also like there's some real deep cuts in here still, even for me. Like as a Watergate buff, I had to Google – the whole thing about the itt affair which is referenced here at least two or three times
0: Mm -hmm. Um, and i gather
1: was a pretty big scandal uh it at that in 72 but has since but completely forgotten by you know modern america
0: right you know i was i was kind of shocked that because i i think my first experience with the national lampoon record was on this podcast because it's not something i grew up with somebody told me to listen to that's not funny it's sick and that is one of their filthiest most legitimately vile albums uh there's some really funny stuff on it but like there's nothing really that like quote-unquote edgy on this one not in that way anyway it's because maybe because it's more focused i don't know
1: right well those are like also the that's not funny as sick and, and radio dinner are examples of it's basically like the best of the national lampoon radio hour right. like the, they had the national lampoon radio hour for many years and that was like a serious job like the people writing that took it real seriously and like when you see when it's the best eight sketches from the radio hour you're like these are eight solid sketches like they've really worked hard on these mm-hmm. whereas this thing seems like a cash grab it seems like a cash grab yeah. everybody else was introducing uh, Watergate albums this in the summer of 74 so why not why don't we do it too and we'll all go to the studio for a day and a half and improvise part of it like <laughs> maybe that wasn't the case here but that's kind of what it seems like and like it seems like they already had somebody else provided all those edited uh, Nixon tapes for side one, and then they were like, "Let's get Belushi and Chevy in the studio. We'll fart around. We'll make up some stuff, and we'll we'll have this record released pretty quick." I mean, that that could easily be the story of this. Maybe I'm selling them short. Maybe they carefully scripted it over a period of months and had table reads, but I I seriously
0: doubt it. It's interesting to go from the first Family in 62, which is a lighthearted jab, but well-meaning jab, to 12 years later, how many albums, including this one, that were just like, no, no, everything is fucked. Let's, let's just make sure everybody's aware the world's burning. And let's also, again, there are weird cash grabs like this. There are a bunch. There's like David Fry because he could do an impression. Let's just release another Nixon album. And um, it's it's a weird time for comedy albums, but fascinating.
1: Definitely, I have one. I had a couple other ones too, which I've since misplaced. That were like, yeah, that were like a lot of like B and C list comedians coming out with their own Watergate album, Um, just because everybody was doing it. And I think that this is to, to state the obvious here. Like, there wasn't much of this comedy, much of any comedy like this on TV. In that era or even yeah. really on the radio like that's why this that's why there were so many records because the whole countercultural comedy like there was no saturday night live saturday night Live kind of was the first tv thing to and cap you know to really adopt that kind of national lampoon outlook right like laughing did it a little bit but laughing was long gone by 74 i think mm-hmm. and even if it wasn't they, they i'm sure that their jabs were pretty light in, in tone because it was network television yes so the only place really to get this kind of comedy was on record or from, you know, stand ups if you want to see one of literature prior or something like that. But like that's probably why there were so many, because there was a market for it, there was an appetite for it, and you simply couldn't get it on TV. You weren't gonna get it on the movies, you wouldn't get it on much on you know, any radio stations except college radio. So like that, you know, it was a weird pent up demand for kind of a you know, satirical take that just the you know, the networks were very respectful of of the administration right and big business general and all that stuff <laughs> until the late 70s
0: yeah i mean that's why the smothers brothers had so much damn trouble getting anything on the air half the time was because of you know absolutely oh the the influence was upsetting uh you've already so towards the end i normally like to ask why I recommend this album you've already said eh, you know listen to it or don't but here's why so you've already told us why um you you but you've also made a, a good argument for for giving this a listen at least if, if you've got access to it um, I, I I would say the same. There's some interesting stuff on it. It's it's hit or miss, but again, listening to early Belushi and Chevy Chase uh, is is definitely worth it as well. Uh, I I wrote something down so early on. Do any copies of your magazine with Josh still exist? Are there any of those out there that are readable? You mean our high school magazine? Yeah, your high school your high school humor magazine.
1: Yes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's... there are there some. There's probably some in the school library, but there's also, I'm sure each of us have at least ten copies of each of the, each of the two issues.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying those should be digitized. Yes. I I, I so desperately oh, they, want to read one now. <laughs> desperately not, want to.
1: You're not going to get a lot of laughs. Most of it, almost all of it, was about internal school. <laughs> you know, that's the great at though. The school and the teachers and stuff. So it's um it's I don't think it would have a much mass appeal, but it was you know it, it, was, it was it was it was very high quality the circumstances
0: for sure um well uh, i really appreciate you doing this um i also appreciate the fact that you've written many many things that have influenced me and have made me laugh over the years so thank you for that um i want to uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you what might be upcoming this episode's going to come out next week i believe so
1: uh excellent okay well i have all the things i'm working on are not going to be out for a long time okay um as i said i'm doing something That deals with the politics of the late 1960s, but that will not be out um, uh, until next year. So I'm not going to promote it now. The only thing that you can do is if you guys, my hobby, (laughs) my hobby is reviewing fast food. And Mm -hmm. I do it on Instagram. um, And it's that Bill Oakley on Instagram. I make short, funny videos about fast food items. And they have kind of, uh, it's kind of caught on over the time. And I've become a little bit of a fast food influencer if such a thing exists. (laughs) 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 I realize how stupid that sounds, but um, it's true. So um if you have the slightest bit of interest in seeing what kind of you know short funny things I do in my spare time, check out my Instagram at that BillOakley.
0: That's delightful. Um well when this next thing comes out, um obviously you're welcome back anytime, but if you want to come back to promote it, we'd be happy to do so because I'm sure it will be good, whatever it is. Um Excellent. thank you so much for doing this again. Um and uh yeah, uh everybody, thank you guys for listening. Uh, I'll just say, you know what? Visit my Instagram, why not? Uh, At Jason Klom, (laughs) J-A-S-O-N-K-L-A-M-M. Hashtag the professional blur. That's where you can see uh, all my work as an extra. Uh, And I'm trying to do a podcast about it that will be coming out in a few weeks soon um, about all my extra work and my friend's extra work. So there we go. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts Stolen Dress Entertainment.
1: Hey, it's my turn. Ah!